evidence and answers. Recently, several Islamic countries in the Middle East signed a treaty recognizing Israel as a nation and establishing relations with one another. Is peace coming to the Middle East? Or can we expect continual tension between Israel and nations like Iran? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. At the Evidence and Answers 2020 End Times Conference, Dr. Andrew Woods explained the significance of the Abraham Accords and its connection with Bible prophecy. Now here's part one of our third teaching with Dr. Andy Woods. Good to have you back with us. Thanks for spending your afternoon with us here or for some of you, your morning, or for some of you, your evening. Dr. Andy Woods is back with us. He's gonna be talking about some of the exciting stuff going on in the Middle East right now. You're hearing about Abraham Accords, how some of the Islamic countries in the Middle East are acknowledging and normalizing relationships with Israel. Is peace coming to the Middle East or are we expecting something else? Well, let's see what Bible prophecy has to say. When we get back with Dr. Andy Woods. He's PhD is from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's an author and speaker on this area and pastor of Sugarland Bible Church. I'm sure he'll talk about some of the books that he's written on this particular topics. Uh, once again, here is from Houston, Texas. Here's Dr. Andy Woods. We are dealing with the subject of the Abraham Accords and the coming Middle East War. You probably have heard of these Abraham Accords. They were really, really big in the news. Oh, I don't know, maybe about a month ago. Haven't heard too much about them lately. But basically, let me sort of explain, if I could, what these Abraham Accords are, because you may not know exactly what they are if you're not an avid news devotee. Basically, what the Abraham Accords are, are agreements with Israel. And they are actually agreements between the nation of Israel and what we would call the Gulf states, states like Bahrain, states like the United Arab Emirates, which are on the west side, if you will, of the Persian Gulf. These uh, areas, Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, and there you notice I've got the arrow to Dubai which is a famous city in the United Arab Emirates, sometimes called the UAE. That just kind of orients you to where these nations are that have entered into these so-called Abraham Accords with the nation of Israel. So these are basically small countries. These are countries actually that have never been at war with the nation of Israel. And so it's sort of inaccurate to refer to them as peace agreements. You can't have a peace agreement with someone you were never at war with. Probably a better designation for these Abraham Accords. And these were brokered by Donald Trump and his son, Jared Kushner, who's been given, you know, authority, you know, over Middle East policy in the United States. I would probably prefer to call them normalization agreements. And basically what they call for is for these states, these Gulf states, to simply recognize the modern existence of the nation of Israel. A lot of Islamic countries don't even recognize Israel exists. They don't even have Israel drawn on their maps. And so they just want, Israel just wants recognition 
And in exchange for that, the countries have agreed to exchange what I call the three T's, trade, technology, and tourism. And these are very interesting because there hasn't been agreements like this between Israel and other nations since the peace agreements that the state of Israel entered into with Jordan about, oh, 25 years ago in the late 1990s. Uh, And before that, Egypt. Egypt and Jordan, of course, are, you know, very, very close to Israel, Jordan being adjacent to Israel. And those were actual peace agreements. These have come along, and Israel hasn't had such an agreement since that time, but these have come along very recently through the administration of Donald Trump. And added to those two peace agreements are these normalization agreements, as I've tried to explain them and describe them with Israel and these two Persian Gulf states. And it's generally believed that as these have been entered into, other nations in the region like Saudi Arabia, for example, and many others, maybe Qatar, uh, many others are going to fall quickly into place. And so this has happened so fast and so quick, and it happened via the Trump administration just before an American election that it's left a lot of us sort of scratching our heads. What does this mean? How do these Abraham Accords, and I guess that name Abraham Accords is interesting in and of itself. It's sort of acknowledging that Abraham is the father of not just the nation of Israel, but through Ishmael, he's also the father of various, you know, the Arab people groups, Arab states. And that's probably why the name Abraham Accords was selected. But as Christians and Bible readers, we know the name Abraham. We know the, all about the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, that God entered into with the patriarch Abraham concerning the future of the nation of Israel. And then what jumps into our headlines are these Abraham Accords. And we want to know how, how does all of this fit into Bible prophecy. So what I'd like to share with you in this particular presentation are seven stages. I would think of the nation of Israel in terms of the end times as sort of like a snowball, and that snowball has been running. It's been running for a long time, and there's a trajectory in place that I believe God has put in place in modern times, probably I would say beginning in 1948, And that trajectory continues to build, it continues to grow like a rolling snowball. And these Abraham Accords, as I've tried to define them, don't stop the snowball. They don't stop the trajectory, but they add to the inertia. And so I'll try to explain that trajectory really in points one through three. And then I'll try to explain how the Abraham Accords fit into that trajectory and contribute to that trajectory in points four through seven. So my presentation is broken down into these seven stages. So let's start here with stage number one, long before the Abraham Accords. The first uh, stage went into existence, which is a restored state of Israel. I would call this the political rebirth of the nation of Israel. And that is a big, big deal because God, through the prophet Ezekiel, explains that Jerusalem, he has set at the center of the nations. 
Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 5. And then in Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 12, it refers to the nation of Israel as those who live at the center of the world. Now, that Hebrew word center, when you look it up in a Hebrew lexicon, it literally means the navel or the belly button, which refers to the center of the body. So this is how God looks at the world. He looks at the world through the belly button or the centerpiece of the nation of Israel in general and the city of Jerusalem in particular. So the reality of the situation is nothing in the prophetic scenario can transpire or make any sense without a reborn state of Israel. It was W.E. Blackstone in his book, Jesus is Coming, written 40 years, 1908, before Israel ever became a nation, when he said this, he said, Israel is God's sundial. Anyone who desires to know our place in God's chronology, our position in the great march of events, look at Israel. And so it was Blackstone that basically called Israel God's timepiece. In other words, if you want to know what time it is from God's perspective, in terms of the end of the age, you have to focus on the nation of Israel. And so, of course, for 2,000 years, there was no state of Israel. The nation of Israel was evicted from their land by the Romans in AD 70 at the close of the first century, and the Jews were pushed into what is called the global diaspora or the dispersion, and there was no state of Israel. And lo and behold, May the 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel was born in what is called the War of Independence. And immediately when that happened, prophecy watchers started to pay attention because now the central piece was now in place around which all end-time prophetic scripture revolves. I like to ask people a basic question, how many Jebusites do you know? Or how many Amalekites do you know? Or how many Girgashites do you know? They're mentioned in the Bible alongside Israel in the Old Testament, but they cease to exist as people groups. Sociologists tell us that when people are outside of their land for a few generations, they lose their distinctiveness as a culture. They just assimilate into the host culture. And isn't it interesting that the Jebusites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, all of those groups mentioned in the book of Genesis have ceased to exist. They've lost their distinctiveness, and here are the the Jews or the Hebrews still in existence. They've been outside of their land for 2,000 years, and they went back into the same land that they were evicted from 2,000 years earlier speaking the same language and with their same religion. That's why many people refer to Israel as the miracle on the Mediterranean. It's an absolute miracle that it exists. And some refer to this as the super sign or the end of the age. Mark uh, Twain traveled to that area in 1867 and wrote about it in a book called Innocence Abroad, published 1869. And he describes what he saw in 1867 as follows, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent mournful expanse, a desolation is here that not 
even imagination can grace with pomp of life and action, we never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive tree and the cactus, those fast friends of worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. That's what that area was like for 2,000 years, right up to 1867. And then lo and behold, 1948, the nation is rebirthed. So that was the first thing that was put into place that started this end times snowball rolling. The second stage is not only was Israel returned to her land, but she was returned in unbelief. Even as we look at the nation of Israel today, she is still in unbelief. She has never nationally received Jesus or what they would call Yeshua as their national Savior. And this fits with what God wants to do. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, we learn that, alas, that day is great. There is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Of course, Jacob's name was changed to Israel in the book of Genesis. I have the scripture verses there. And God's purpose is to recycle Israel back to her homeland in unbelief so that she will pass through a time of unparalleled distress called Jacob's trouble, and through it all, she will be saved. So not only has God returned Israel to her land, but she's, he's returned her in unbelief in preparation for the tribulation period, exactly as he predicted. You see this in Ezekiel's prophecies. Ezekiel gives the famous prophecy of the regathering of Israel in the last days, where God says, I will take you from the nations and from the lands and bring you into your own land. Then, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Verse 26, I will put a new spirit within you. You see the order here? First, they're brought back into their land in unbelief, and then as they come to faith in the tribulation period, the Spirit of God will enter them. The same truth is taught one chapter later in Exodus 37 through the valley of the dry bones. Ezekiel, beginning in verse 7, saw the bones assembling so that it formed a human skeleton. It's interesting that he talks about this, verse 7, as a loud noise, and I would say that's very accurate today. Uh, Israel is in the headlines constantly. She is a very loud noise, just like God said she would be when this was predicted six centuries before the time of Christ. Then Ezekiel saw uh, muscles and skin come over this human body so that it forms a living body. But then he says, I saw no breath in them. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they came to life. Now, the breath is the spirit in Hebrew called the ruah, which will fill the nation of Israel once one day she is in faith. And these bones and this prophecy has nothing to do with the church or any particular Christian denomination, because it says in verse 11, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So we are living in a time period where the body has been restored, but the breath we're still waiting to enter, and that will happen in the events of the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom that follows. 
Dr. John Walford, one of the great scholars of the end times, wrote this back in the 1960s. He says, of the many peculiar phenomena which characterize the present generation, few events can claim equal significance as far as biblical prophecy is concerned with that of the return of Israel to their land. It constitutes preparation for the end of the age, the setting for the coming of the Lord for his church and the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic destiny. I very much appreciate this chart by Dr. Randall Price, where he describes Israel's two regatherings, a present regathering and a future regathering. In the present regathering, she returns to part of her land. In the future regathering, she will return to all of her land. In the present regathering, she returns in unbelief. In the second regathering, she will return in faith. In the present regathering, beginning in 1948, she's restored to the land only. But in that second regathering, at the end of the tribulation, she will be restored to the land and the Lord. The first regathering sets the stage for discipline, the events of the tribulation, that final regathering at the end of the tribulation will set the stage for blessing of the millennial kingdom. And what hinges the two sections together will be the tribulation, which will bring Israel to faith. And we're living really in fascinating and exciting times where we're living literally in between those two regatherings. The first regathering in unbelief has happened and we're waiting for that second regathering to occur. And so Revelation chapter 11, verse 8 of the city of Jerusalem, prior to Israel's salvation, calls it the city where their Lord was crucified, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom, depravity, Egypt, bondage. That is the city of Jerusalem today. It's a corpse that has been restored but she has not turned to the Lord yet, and consequently, she continues today in unbelief. But that won't be her final state. The day will come in the events of the tribulation period leading into the kingdom that Israel will not just be restored to the land as she is today, but she will be restored to the Lord. So number one, Israel has been restored. Number two, she has been restored in unbelief, exactly like God said. Number three, Israel had to gain control of the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's a map of what the nation of Israel was like when she was restored in 1948, before she regained Judea and Samaria in 1967. So it's that white area. And you can see there from that map that it's a very small sliver between that and the Mediterranean Sea, only about 10 miles uh, distance. And yet, Bible prophecy predicts that the day would come when the nations will come against Israel in Jerusalem. She didn't have control of the city of Jerusalem in 1948. Zechariah 12, verse 3 says, It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all people. All who lift it will be severely injured, and the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. You have a similar prediction in Zechariah 14, verse 2, where God says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. 
to battle and the city will be captured. So this is a prophecy, Zechariah 12, verse 3, Zechariah 14, verse 2, of the nations coming against the Jews in Jerusalem. So obviously a prophecy like that can't be fulfilled unless the Jews are in control of Jerusalem, something they weren't in control of in 1948. It's also interesting that Jesus himself predicted that when the temple is desecrated midway through the tribulation period, the Jews in Judea will flee to the mountains. Now, where is Judea? There's a picture of Judea and Samaria there. That's a territory that Israel didn't control in 1948. And suddenly, on June the 5th, 1967, in what is called the Six-Day War, the nation of Israel regained control of that yellow area there, flippantly called the West Bank by world leaders, but biblically it's known as Judea and Samaria. And in the process, they got control of the city of Jerusalem. So now the prophecies are in place for the nations to come against the Jews in Jerusalem. They have control over that city. And now the prophecies are in place, or the geography is in place, for the Jews in Judea to flee into the wilderness. How can the Jews in Judea flee to the wilderness until the Jews control Judea? And so the recapture of Judea and Samaria in the Six-Day War, along with the recapture of the ancient city of Jerusalem, is now something else that's causing our snowball to continue to roll and to get larger and larger and larger, and to pick up velocity as it's rolling, it appears downhill. So we've got Israel restored, number one. Number two, she's restored in unbelief. Number three, she has control of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which she must have control over, according to Bible prophecy, for it to be fulfilled. And this takes us to number four, where not only does Israel have to have these things, but she must be in a mindset where she wants to make treaties or deals to guarantee her survival. Now, the prophet Isaiah chapter 28, verse 15 and verse 18 says, The day will come when Israel in unbelief will make a covenant with death and Sheol, a pact or a covenant with death or Sheol, which simply means hell itself. And once she enters into this agreement, this deal of the century, so to speak, that is the point in time in which she enters into this peace treaty with Antichrist, guaranteeing her survival. That's the point in time in which the seven-year countdown of the seven-year tribulation period begins. The seven-year tribulation period is described in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, and it will begin with a treaty between the nation of Israel, unbelieving Israel, and the Antichrist. The treaty will begin the seven-year tribulation period. The midpoint will be the Antichrist's desecration of the Jewish temple. All of that will lead to a converted Israel in the second half of the tribulation period and it culminates with the return of Jesus himself, who will rescue Israel at that time, now that she's in faith from the wrath of Satan and the Antichrist, who are trying to 
blot her from the earth. So notice it's not the rapture that begins this time period. The rapture occurs, but what actually begins the seven-year countdown will be the peace treaty, the covenant of death between Antichrist and unbelieving Israel, guaranteeing Israel's survival. Now, the question is, is the world or is Israel or our current events moving us in that direction? I would say clearly yes. You'll notice on this map, the green area, that represents Islamic countries. And that little red dot represents Israel. Now, what the world community is saying is Israel needs to give up more land to Muslims to guarantee her survival. And obviously, a nation in that kind of predicament, backed up against the Mediterranean Sea, is in a desperate position to reach out to anyone who will guarantee her survival. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.